Welcome. Welcome listeners to Functionally Speaking, a podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. I'm your host, DJ Moran, and thanks for choosing to listen to this podcast. I've interviewed two very influential behavior analysts in the past. In fact, it was quite a few years ago that I did the interviews that I'm including in this podcast. But the interviews are worthy of publishing even though they were some time ago. I interviewed Kelly Wilson right about the time of the release of Mindfulness for Two. And I also interviewed Julie Vargas, B.F. Skinner's daughter, right around the time of the publication of her book, Behavior Analysis for Effective Teaching. So we'll get to those in a minute. I just wanted to say prior to the interviews that the holidays are upon us. And if you are buying gifts for the people you care about and you use Amazon for your shopping, please make sure you go to that shopping webpage, amazon.com, by clicking through the ACBS website. Every time people get to Amazon by going through the ACBS banner page, our nonprofit organization gets a little bit of money from the purchases. It costs nothing from you except a few seconds of effort. So just go to the ACBS webpage, contextualscience.org, and type raise money in the search window, and the first hit you will get will be the banner page that I'm talking about here. Click through that to Amazon. In fact, bookmark it so your Amazon purchases throughout the year will benefit our organization. And while shopping at Amazon, let me make a recommendation for you. If you sometimes struggle with explaining to your family or your friends what you do as an act-based behavioral health practitioner or researcher because they really aren't psychologically minded or perhaps they work in the trades or in industry or in construction. Perhaps the people that you're talking to are blue-collar workers and they just don't have the same kind of perspective that you do about life and the world. Let me offer you a resource. Give them the book Building Safety Commitment. I wrote the book to help frontline workers incorporate mindfulness and values into their everyday work tasks. My aim was to use a voice as if I were talking to the people I used to work with when I was a union electrician, when I was a roofer and a construction worker. It's just straight talk about ACT. I think I used the word mindfulness only like five times in the main text of that book. I never mentioned the word diffusion. I never mentioned the phrase self as context. I aim for just practical, plain language that anyone can understand. The back cover of the book has an endorsement from Steve Hayes. The inside page has an endorsement from Kelly Wilson. And I was really honored that the book got such fantastic and unsolicited praise from Russ Harris on the listserv in the spring of 2014, where he said that the book, quote, brilliantly succeeded in distilling the whole Hexaflex into 100% jargon-free, simple, everyday language that anyone can quickly grasp. That comes right from the listserv. Thank you for those kudos, Russ. Thank you very much. Um, If you're searching for a stocking stuffer, a zawadi, a tchotchke to give to your loved ones this season, check out Building Safety Commitment. Heck, maybe you will not only be able to communicate your passion for ACT 
better and have it better understood by your family and friends, but maybe you might be helping them work more safely at their jobs. You can go to buildingsafetycommitment.com to order it, but I'd sure like it if you'd go through the ACBS click-through banner. Why am I so hot on that Amazon banner? Well, I'm the treasurer for ACBS right now. And since Emily and I opened up that revenue stream, we're seeing monthly payments from Amazon to our nonprofit organization. And if we kept that up throughout the year, it could add up to approximately the amount we've been spending in years past on travel for invited speakers to get to our conferences. Now, I'm not saying we're earmarking it for that expenditure, but if our whole organization would use the click-through banner before going to that popular shopping website, we would have greater resources for our organization. So please consider bookmarking it. Now, on to the interview with Kelly Wilson from a few years back. I'm here with Kelly Wilson at the World Congress in Enschede, um, the Netherlands, and it's the last day here, and I've gotten the opportunity here to ask Kelly a couple of questions about acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, Kelly, if you would, please uh, let me know, um, why did you write Mindfulness for Two? Out of all the books you could have written, I know that you've got a great deal of knowledge about many things behavioral, but why Mindfulness for Two? Um, well, I mean, the evolution of the book um, and and my sort of sense of needing to write it um, comes uh, from a couple of different uh, directions. Um, and I suppose if I, you know, sort of look at the earliest um, precipitants, it would be that my interest in behavior analysis uh, really stemmed from an interest in the kinds of suffering that I saw around me and the suffering I saw among the people who I loved and cared about. And so for me, behavior analysis was always a way uh, to reach in and to make a difference in those things. And uh, it is, I think, at its heart a practical science. Um, one of the problems, I think, that behavior analysis has had is that it has uh, spoken in a language that has been very difficult to hear for people other than behavior analysts. And, um, uh, if most of the world were behavior analysts, that wouldn't be a problem. But um, most of the world aren't behavior analysts. And um, among clinicians, um, that is um, likewise true, that uh, the overwhelming majority of clinicians have um, perhaps no behavioral training at all uh, or behavioral training that is um, incorrect, inaccurate, um, to the tradition, um, or it was long ago <laughs> and uh, forgotten. And uh, so my aim in writing the book was um, to write a book about uh, topics that seem central and important in therapeutic work um, that were consistent with uh, behavioral language but spoken in a voice um, where they could be heard by a much, much broader audience than behavior analysts. Neat. It's a fantastic book. It's uh, on New Harbinger. Um, and I know that uh, 
much of your ability to write that book comes from years of doing trainings and supervision for folks. And I was wondering, out of all the people that you've worked with and um, all the people that you've trained and especially supervised, what do you think uh, one of the core skills um, really needs supervision, um, maybe some strengthening in clinicians? What, what is it that you try to build up in your, uh, your supervisees and your trainees? It's, it's a little hard to answer that question in, in quite that way. So I'm, I'm a contextualist, so, you know, when I think about this, I think about the shaping of uh, the behavior of clinicians, including my supervisees and my trainees. And so it's a matter of, you know, how can I set a context um, that will allow them to um, hear and see the kinds of things that I think are important for them to hear and see. And... This book, in many respects, um, was not a book that uh, I wrote and then took out and presented uh, as a context to change the behavior of uh, clinicians and supervisees. It was really more like this book was written inside of that conversation and my own sort of moment by moment noticing the kinds of things that had an impact on clinicians and uh, seemed uh, to move them. So there are um, a, quite a few thousand clinicians who helped me to write this book, and the book is really the pouring of that supervision and workshop experience into a book form. What I'm trying to shape up in the book um, is um, that, you know, when we have um, uh, treat fairly simple problems like a simple phobia where the thing avoided is outside of your skin like a spider or a snake or an elevator um, and the avoidant repertoire is very apparent and it looks something like running away from that um, we are incredibly successful and uh, powerful in our uh, treatment of those kinds of things but with more complex human problems um, at least from an act perspective we believe that that same kind of uh, narrowing of repertoire where a person's repertoire is dominated by avoidance is common in um, uh, across many, many different um, psychological difficulties. Um, but the difference is, is that the thing that they're avoiding isn't always apparent. And so sometimes the thing that they're avoiding is the way their body feels at a moment or a memory that they might have uh, or at something that almost touches a memory that they might have. And so the thing avoided is sometimes not at all apparent. Um, and then also the avoidant repertoire um, doesn't look like running away from some external object. Um, and so, you know, what I'm attempting to do in Mindfulness for Two is uh, to teach therapists to look um, at their clients in a very close and careful way and to notice, to begin to notice um, what um, those avoidant repertoires look like and the, the very sort of subtle uh, qualities that, behavioral, that behavior has, that that behavioral stream has, that can tell you that you are in the presence of uh, avoidance. Um, and then... Um, to use that kind of moment-by-moment -moment contact with um, seeing that avoidant repertoire 
uh, to guide uh, the kinds of treatment activities uh, that we do. Great. I appreciate your time and, uh, and telling me all about that. I've read the book. I think it's excellent. And I think uh, everything that you just described right there um, uh, really summarizes um, a lot of the core uh, issues. And I recommend the book highly to you folks. I've read the book, and uh, you take a new, unique perspective, kind of a, even a unique um, approach in describing and teaching the elements of behavior analysis. Um, there's a chapter in there on stimulus control, um, and stimulus control is a really difficult concept for a lot of behavior analysts just to learn as they're, as they're becoming students of behavior analysis. But your way of approaching it um, really, I think, can resonate with um, the most beginner of a student and I even think it can echo some, some interesting uh, ways of thinking about stimulus control for seasoned clinicians and behavior analysts. Why don't you tell me a little bit about um, the way that you uh, voiced your, um, your book? I think it's interesting the way that you did that. Well, I thank you for your kind words about the book. Um, I was actually a little uh, nervous when I wrote the book because I've really spent um, my career to date writing uh, technical and scientific uh, materials and you know there's a sort of a third person you know quality to most of those narratives um, a kind of fly on the wall description of a series of events and as I wrote mindfulness for two my audience my intended audience was uh, clinicians and secondarily uh, scientists but my primary audience was clinicians. And I have always found um, that if I can speak to them very directly, that that uh, seems to make a difference. And so the whole book, just about, is written in uh, first and second person. Uh, and so I'm speaking very uh, directly to uh, each reader in that book. And uh, I worried uh, a bit uh, about my scientific colleagues, that they would sort of look at that very personal voicing of the book and um, sort of shake their heads in disdain. Um, and I expect that I will get some of that. And um, I'm uh, willing uh, to accept that uh, if uh, what the book does is um, speak in a way that allows clinicians to hear what it is I think is important about behavior analysis. Um, and I do quite a lot of that by asking them to sort of look within and to notice, you know, their own comings and goings from the present moment. And so wherever I talk about client processes and client avoidance and client difficulties, there are parts of the book that ask the clinician to reflect on their own struggles in the therapy room and to become present to those uh, in the service of helping their clients. Um, I think, um, well, I don't think. Uh, I am willing to defend on either theoretical or empirical grounds uh, everything that I have said in there. Not to say that everything in there is right, but I believe that the things that I've said in there are uh, coherent either with theory or with the existing evidence. Um, now, we may gather more evidence that proves some of them wrong, and um, I hope that I have 
laid it out in a way that people can see how to uh, show me where I'm wrong, and I would be welcome. I would welcome um, being shown the uh, error in my thinking. Uh, my hope is that the serious scientists out there that encounter the book um, look beyond its odd voicing and see the scientific arguments that uh, lie behind this very um, uh, personal uh, document. Fantastic. Um, I um, hope that the critics uh, of the book uh, will be able to be uh, open to, uh, to what you've read. Um, I would invite them also to um, go ahead and talk to you or attend one of your workshops on relational frame theory or talk to you about complex uh, human behavior. I think uh, it would belie any of their concerns. Um, and uh, again, I appreciate your time with me today. Uh, thank you very much for this opportunity to talk with you, DJ. Thanks. So check out Mindfulness for Two if you already haven't, or check out Kelly's more recently published books, such as Things Might Go Terribly Horribly Wrong, A Guide to Life Liberated from Anxiety, or The Wisdom to Know the Difference, an Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Workbook for Overcoming Substance Abuse. Both of those books are on New Harbinger and both by Kelly Wilson and Troy Dufresne. Now, up next is a brief interview with Julie Vargas. It was a great honor to meet her because she is the daughter of one of the people I greatly admire. I might have been a little bit nervous around here during the interview, and as I listen back to this interview, I'm not super proud of my contribution to it, um, and I might have been a little bit nervous for two reasons. One, I admire her father so much, and two, in my previous interaction with her, I did not come off in the best light. You see, when I was a professor at Valparaiso University, the Behaviorology Conference came to the area. It came to the Chicagoland area. And behavior, uh, behaviorologists are like super hardcore behavior analysts. They have their conference right around B.F. Skinner's birthday, and they really forward a natural science agenda when studying behavior. Well, they invited me to speak at the conference. I had recently given the presidential address to the Behavior Analysis Society of Illinois about free will and determinism from a radical behavioral approach. And since I was in the area of that particular behaviorology conference, uh, they invited me to talk about that topic. And I agreed, of course. I think I submitted the title for the talk, something like uh, Perspectives of Autonomy and Heteronomy. Autonomy, obviously, is about free will and heteronomy, not so obviously, is about how behavior is determined uh, by external forces. Um, so the conference day comes, and I didn't know it, but it was single track, and about only 25 people were in this small boardroom, all of them just behavioral science luminaries. Um, and they're all giving these super hardcore presentations all morning, and then I'm the last person to go right before lunch. And after someone reads my intro, I show my title slide, and I say, I, I appreciate you all inviting me and letting me be part of your group. Uh, this topic of autonomy and heteronomy is important to radical behaviorism, 
But I have to say that I didn't actually prepare a talk for today. Um, this title slide is all I have. I did not create a presentation. Um, I'm sorry, but thank you for the opportunity. And I just let the sickening silence sink in. And it was a few uncomfortable few seconds, but it felt like minutes. And I looked around the room at irate faces. I mean, these folks were PO'd. Uh, these behavioralologists were just, they were honestly turning red, some of them. Uh, people were giving me perplexed, angry looks. And then I asked, are you mad at me personally? Are you having private verbal events like he is a bad academic? He is a careless professor? Or are you saying something like, this new guy is totally irresponsible? If behaviorologists analyze behavior with the assumption that behavior is determined and not freely chosen, then I have to ask, why are you being occasioned to have blaming thoughts as if I were irresponsible? And not looking at this situation as if my behavior were subject to competing contingencies, and perhaps I'm not to blame. But notice that the language repertoire shaped in Western civilization just go there to look at autonomy of behavior first, even if you've been influenced to be a hardcore behavior analyst. And then I clicked to the next PowerPoint slide and began my prepared presentation about radical behaviorism and free will and determinism. And when it was over, we went to lunch, and gee whiz, that whole group was mad about how I started out that talk. Uh, but they liked the concepts that followed. Um, Julie Vargas was in the audience that day. Uh, and this interview was just a short time after that behaviorology conference. And I didn't want to do anything that would be off-putting to her again. So I just did a very simple interview and still awkwardly interacted with her the way I do. So check it out. Enjoy. This is DJ Moran, and I am here at the Hoosier Association for Behavior Analysis on Friday, October 16th. And I'm here with Julie Vargas, who is B one of B.F. Skinner's daughters. And I'm um, very happy to have uh, sat through a couple of uh, presentations here today and also had the opportunity to hear uh, Julie speak yesterday. And Julie, what I'd like to do, and uh, first I'd like to say thank you for sitting down with me and having this conversation. The question that I'm sure you've been asked a dozen times, if not a hundred times, but I still would like to uh, know is, uh, what was it like growing up as uh, Skinner's daughter? Yes, I have been asked that quite a lot. Um, the interesting thing is that while I was growing up, he was not famous. And I do remember actually being in Indiana in a second grade and being very jealous because one of my friend's fathers was a fireman. And that was a big status thing, and mine was only a professor. It wasn't really until I was already married that Skinner was really widely known. Um, he, he should have been known for Walden too earlier, but that book took, took a long time to start really selling well. And the one that really brought him to most people's attention was Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And by then I was married, so you know it was very different. When I went to college, I went to, to Radcliffe, same thing as Harvard, and um, 
I was in music and people said, are you related to the Skinner Organ Company? <laughs> to which, of course, I could just say no. Then uh, the people in English wanted to know whether I was related to Cornelia Otis Skinner, but nobody asked me whether I was related to B. Ferris Frederick Skinner. Uh, my father was a, was a wonderful father. He was always um, interacting a lot with both, of both my sister and with me. And uh, <coughs> I did, I did uh, figure out ways to keep him. He, he put us to bed usually, and I, f I figured out ways to keep him longer talking and so forth <laughs> by asking questions. And yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, and I, I do remember one, one time when <coughs> he disappointed me. <coughs> Excuse me. He disappointed me because um, I asked him what was beyond space. Where does space end and what's beyond space? And he said, well, it's kind of like a Mobius strip. And he took a piece of paper and he folded it. So an Mobius strip is sort of, it looks like a, a figure eight, but there's a twist in it. So that if you draw a pencil line, it covers the whole thing. And he says, space is like that. And somehow that didn't quite satisfy me. That's funny, my uh, son once asked me, and it made me actually think of uh, Dr. Skinner. He, my son asked me, is mankind bigger than science? And I was like, wow, you know, strange questions from, uh, from kids as, as they're thinking. Uh, I wanted you to know that, uh, interestingly, uh, my first son, I uh, lobbied very hard to name him Burris Frederick Moran, uh, but my wife said, I think we have to name him something more conventional. Um, but I wanted to know, what, are, um, what were some of the challenges? Were there any challenges growing up as uh, Dr. Skinner's daughter? can't really say that there were any challenges uh, because he wasn't known particularly. Um, one thing is that I, I do remember that uh, I avoided taking his course <laughs> because I figured that if I did badly it would really be not nice and if I did extremely well everybody would say oh well. So it was going to be a losing situation. However, he used to to um, contact me. Well, I, w I lived at home my first year, and then I went into the dorm the, the, the uh, second year. I went into the dorms. So he would, he would call me and say, um, this is going to be a good demonstration. And then I would go to class yeah, yeah. and watch the demonstration. Very cool. and, uh, and so I, I really enjoyed that. Why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, what you're doing now? I know it's behavior analytically related. Um, and why don't you describe some of your current projects and uh, tell me a little bit about uh, anything that might be coming out in the near future publication-wise. Well, I just had a book, Behavior Analysis for Effective Teaching, published. It came out in March. And publishers want things on, on coordinated websites but they don't want things on coordinated websites to change because they don't want to have somebody who has to keep updating. Um, so I did get them to agree to make a link from their website, which has simply directions for running projects and so forth, which I did write for them, and that's posted on their website. 
a link to one that I would write. And it's, it's uh, I originally got the, the domain name Behavior Analysis for Effective Teaching, and I got so sick of typing it that I uh, changed it to BA4ET, number four. So www.ba4et, I mean, um, et.com. And so I, what I'm doing right now is I'm working on that. Okay. And uh, it's a lot of fun. So I'm glad she's having fun with that and grateful she met with me. Go ahead and check out her website, www.ba4et.com. And check out her book, Behavior Analysis for Effective Teaching. And when you are buying that book and Kelly Wilson's books on Amazon, you know what to do, right? Find the click-through banner on the ACBS webpage and make sure that some of Amazon's profits from your purchase return to our nonprofit organization that likely has similar values that you have. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, reprimands, requests, find me on Twitter at Dr. DJ Moran. That's at D-R-D-J-M-O-R-A-N. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Functionally Speaking.